Oh, that rugged cross, my salvation, where your love poured out for me. Now my soul cries out, hallelujah, praise and honor unto thee. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me, whom the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. Pray with me. God, as we gather tonight, we sing these words. We sometimes confess that we, we sing words and we don't even think about what we're singing Forgive us, help us to reflect deeply on the words that we sing as praise and honor and glory to you. We thank you for the gift of salvation that you have offered through your son, Jesus Christ. It is offered as a free gift, but it wasn't free. It cost his life, and he freely gave that. He willingly gave his life in order that we might be made new and reconciled to you. We gather this evening, and worship you together as the body of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. I encourage you to say hello to those around you before you have a seat. I want to welcome those who are here in person as well as those who are joining us online. I'm glad to be able to worship together. Just a reminder, um, during this COVID season, we've kind of shifted some of the things we do, and one of those is for prayer requests. Uh, we used to have a different means for submitting prayer requests, but there is still an, an option available through our website to submit prayer requests, praises. So if there's uh, needs that you have or praises that you want to uh, celebrate, uh, want us to be able to celebrate with you, you can fill those out, and we um, delight in praying for each other within the body of Christ. A few other announcements here. We have our moms group um, kicking off the year 2021. They're going to be meeting this Thursday at 6.30 to 8 p.m. here in the fellowship hall. Tanya Janke is going to be uh, coming and sharing a little bit about healthy eating and taking care of our bodies. And so ladies, uh, moms are invited to come and join for that. There's other dates as well that they have plotted out, so you can mark those on your calendar for uh, future months as well. Corporate prayer is on January 31st, so at the end of the month at 6 p.m. We invite you to come and join us as we pray for each other, certainly as we pray for our nation and our world. There's no shortage of things to be praying for, and we, um, we value praying together corporately. And then final announcement is more just the celebration. Um, today was the ice fishing family outing at Horseshoe Lake and Turtle Lake, and um, we were able to make it out there for a bit. And... I don't know if we had any photos. There's a couple a photo of the Kane, some of the Kane family. Um, but yeah, they actually had, I think, one of the largest groups of, of people out there when we were out there. It was just a lot of people, a lot of holes in the ice. Um, had to look out for where you were walking. But um, they were playing baseball in the snow, a bunch of the kids running around. We brought our great Dane out there, so he was entertainment. He didn't pull anybody in, in a sled, although he maybe could have. But it was a great time, and uh, they do that every year. Uh, I think they even caught a few fish. So just wanted to celebrate that and invite Pastor Cody now to come and bring the message for us this evening. Thank you, Pastor Tony. Well, good evening, everyone. We're glad that you're here, and I'm excited about getting into our passage again. We have been taking some time looking at Acts chapter 2, verse 42. So get your Bibles out and go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. If you forgot your Bible, it's fine. we got one in front of you there. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And we're doing this, before we get into the book of James, we're doing this to help remind ourselves what our church is about. In fact, historically, what our church is about. And it's got these kind of 
four pillars, these four examples of what the church is about. And we've been looking at that. So we're reminding ourselves what the church is about. And then secondly, to prepare ourselves. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. To prepare ourselves for 2021. What should we be devoted to? In fact, I said this the first sermon when we looked at it, they were devoted in these four things to the apostles' teaching. They were devoted to prayer, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread. So it's a reminder for all of us, we must be devoted to these things. And I kind of was laughing this week when I was going through this. I was really like, wow, four sermons on one verse. What's my favorite book of the Bible? I got a calculator out. It would take us 34 years at that rate to get it finished. Romans. I should get going on that soon, right? Okay. But this is an important passage, and we're excited to conclude this four part series being devoted to these things tonight. So before we begin into the word, let's just take a moment and pray. Lord, again, we are reminded of your beauty. And Lord, I ask tonight that you would help me as I share these words of the gospel message. I, I've spent time articulating being as clear as I can on some of these pretty serious issues. And Lord, I pray that our hearts would be ready to receive and understand there's going to be a lot of data. Normally we don't go through all these definitions, but tonight it's important to kind of think through this. So Spirit, I pray that you guide us, you help us understand the beauty of what Christ has done for us. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, so Acts chapter 2. Again, Acts chapter 2 is a great summary. We've been talking about how Acts chapter 2 is kind of this send-off of the, uh, the, the church going out and this universal mission. But it's a great summary of the church in Jerusalem as they've gathered together chapter 2 and uh, until persecution happens in chapter 8. So from this verse on until chapter 8, verse 1, they've got this beautiful community together. They're working together. They're sharing. They're in fellowship. They're doing so much together. It's a great summary. And then we've got this verse here that kind of kicks it off, this paragraph here. It says, so here it is. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We've taken some time looking at how important it is for us to be in God's Word. Not just be in God's Word as we do Bible studies, as we have fellowship and that stuff, our personal devotion, but the importance of preaching God's Word. And that's what they, they were big on hearing the apostles' teaching. And historically, churches are known for preaching God's Word. Then we spent some time looking at prayer. And then some time looking at fellowship. And then today, what we're going to do is we're going to take time looking at the breaking of bread. So when I talk about the breaking of bread, when we look at Scripture, there are two aspects here in this passage here. Two aspects to the breaking of bread. The first part is sharing of meals together. This first reference is referring to table fellowship. They gathered together, broke bread together at homes, at the tables. This was about meals of every kind. They would gather together and have meals together. Meals were viewed as fellowship. Listen to this. First fellowship at the table, they'd gather together. The first fellowship was with God. When we look at church history, they began 
eating their meals with prayer, and they also ended with prayer. In fact, once in a while, I like to say, you know, we're not going to pray before we eat. Let's pray after we eat, because it's okay to do that. We see that in the book of Deuteronomy. That's what they would do. So when they would gather together at the table and share meals together, it was fellowship first with God. They would pause and thank God for the meal, but remind themselves, God is among us right now. How many of you pray before a meal? If you don't pray, that's okay. You know, just put, yeah, we pray to remind us when we're having fellowship with our family or friends, we do this first fellowship with God. Then, fellowship with others. In fact, verse 46, they regularly broke bread in their homes, not just on days of worship. Look at verse They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. So again, the first part of this breaking of bread means that they were often at each other's homes, eating together with glad hearts. In fact, the author of Acts, which is part two of his writing, is Luke. He wrote the first part, the Gospel of Luke. Many times, in fact, I've thought about doing a series just about the times when Jesus was having a meal with someone, where other people were having meals together, what was happening there. Luke has a number of scenes in this Gospel where people spent time over meals, fellowshipping, sharing their hearts. And this continued in the early church. They would gather together. And meals provided a practical aspect of how to do fellowship, which we talked about last week. So if you missed last week's message, go online, it's all there. Having a meal together was a practical way of having fellowship. When you spend time having a meal, you can share more of your life. And then fellowship can spread into every area of your life. So I encourage you, be devoted to have meals together with other believers. Now, if it was up to me, I'd have a meal every night. But because I love my wife, I don't do that. I have it every other night. At my, well, it's maybe not that bad, but... I enjoy having people over. And it's confusing right now. During COVID, we don't do much. But I encourage you, be together. Break bread. And again, so the first part of this is the sharing of meals. Be devoted to have people over. Second aspect included, and this is kind of what we're going to talk about tonight, is taking communion, which is also called the Lord's Supper. Has anybody heard those terms before, right? Okay. I thought of this. For many of us, communion is a very common thing. But imagine if tonight, someone from Rice Lake or Cameron drove by, their tire broke, you know, broke down, or their car broke down, or whatever. Or you know, they, they, I was going to make fun of Aaron, Pastor Aaron. They learned how to put a tire on by him, so this tire fell off. And, and they walked in. Let's say they've never gone to church before. And they walk in when we're starting to do communion, Communion might be a very confusing thing for someone who's not a Christian. Let me give you an example. We use words in the Christian community, words like this, Eucharist. Boy, put that on a hangman one. You'll win, right? Eucharist. Lord's Supper. Lord's Supper, what? Communion. Sacrament. Ordinance. Grape, grape juice. We're using grape juice. Well, doesn't the Bible say wine? We're not following the Bible. So they might be like, what is going on here? All these words. Or, this is Jesus. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. Can you imagine someone from outside going, what kind of cannibalistic 
place is this? They'd be out of here, right? Well, these are the words of Jesus. Again, communion might be a very confusing concept to them. Or the new covenant of my blood. I mean, how many times do you get to understand, oh, the new covenant in my blood? Well, we just spent two years Christ in the Old Testament. We kind of got that down. That's a very confusing thing. So what's going on in this very strange ritual? And as you'll see here in a moment, churches do it in a different way. Someone might be going to a Catholic church, then they might go to a Lutheran church and go, whoa, 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 that's not how you do it. Very confusing. So here's what we're going to do tonight. Tonight I'm going to take some time and look at definitions. Usually when, when I do a sermon I don't go through definitions, but I think it will be good just to kind of go through definitions so we kind of understand terminology, how other churches use words, how we use words. So I'm going to go through definitions. Then I'm going to take some time and look at four different ways different churches understand communion. How different churches do that. How a Catholic church understands it compared to a Baptist church. There's a pretty big difference there. And maybe some of you know this already, but I thought it would be a great time to explain this to you. And then I'm going to talk about what's most important tonight is the distinctions. How people understand and what is actually happening to them in their mind and what their hearts are about during this. What's being achieved, the distinction here, and then we'll end with purpose. Does that make sense? Okay. And again, I encourage you, if you can write some of this down. There's a pencil in front of you, especially when we get to these definitions or just the differences we got here. But these notes are going to be online for you. So instead of, if you miss a slide, you can write some of this down after you print off the notes or they'll be here, right here for you. So let's talk about definitions. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he gathered with his disciples in the upper room. And they had a meal together, Right? And this meal was going to be the what? The what? Anybody know? The Passover. So again, a year and a half ago, we took time talking about this. In fact, how many of you joined us for our Seder service? Okay, a few of you. The Seder service was you know, explaining what is happening. What does the bread mean? What are the different cups and all the stuff that was happening? So in the upper room, they, had to, they were going to celebrate the Jewish Passover meal. And we've learned from Christ in the Old Testament. Here's a definition here. Passover is all about freedom through sacrifice. Passover is all about freedom through sacrifice. God provides freedom. He provides salvation by giving a sacrifice to those who trust in Him. And having this meal, they would, here it is, remember... They would remember, and all, if you remember the Seder service, all the different aspects reminded them of what happened in Exodus chapter 12, 13, and 14. In fact, if you remember Exodus 12, Moses talks about this is what you must do. You must do this. Remember, tell your children, teach your children. Then, as they're doing this, Jesus puts more meaning and new meaning and significance to the Passover meal with his disciples. So I wrote this down. When Jesus shared the meal with his disciples, what we call the Last Supper, it was the Last Supper before he went to the cross and died, he also instituted the ceremonial meal that we call the Lord's Supper. Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14, Luke 22, 
1 Corinthians 11. These are the passages that talk about Jesus having the Last Supper with His disciples that instituted this event that we do, this ceremony that we do, that we call the Last Supper. The early church continued this ceremony as instructed by Jesus to remember God's deliverance, just like the Passover meal. There are many aspects they would remember what God did for the Israelites in Exodus. Jesus showed us that this is the new covenant. And they did this, the early church, to remember that God's deliverance was in the cross. And they celebrated the saving act of God. The Lord's Supper and communion are different words for the same ceremony. How many of you grew up using the word Lord's Supper? Any of you? Okay, not, okay a few of you. How many use the word communion? Okay. So for us, and, and we'll get this in a moment here, for us it's the same word, same concept happening here. But some denominations use the word Eucharist. Okay, have you heard that word before? Okay, Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharista, which means thanksgiving. Now we're going to see here in a moment why we as Protestants and as the evangelical preachers, we don't use the word Eucharist. And we're going to see here in a moment why we don't because the word Eucharist has theological connotations that go with it that we would say, uh-uh, that's not part of the Gospel message. We'll see that in a moment. Also, some denominations call this a sacrament. Have you heard that before? This is a sacrament. Sacrament, for they see this as an event as a means of grace from God. Do this, and you will get grace from God. We're going to explain this here later. So they call it a sacrament. Do this, and you'll get grace from God. Others, like us, we call this an ordinance. A practice that is done as a demonstration of our faith. In doing this, a person expresses thanksgiving for the grace that was already given. There's going to be a big line between these three and this one right here in a moment. Do this, and then you'll get grace from God. Whereas these go, we have the grace of God, we do this out of remembrance, being thankful for what He has done. So that's the difference between sacrament and ordinance there. So here's a summary of what is done during communion. In communion, we eat a piece of bread or wafer that represents Christ's body. And we drink grape juice or wine that represents Christ's blood. But why not wine? Do you ever wonder that? Why don't we have wine here? In fact, a little side note, there are, let me think how many people in our church, there's at least three now who are adults. I think they all have kids. Well, yeah, they all have kids. Back 15 years ago, when I was at Arrowhead Bible Camp, I would take students to Bolivia, overseas. And we would go to the church on Sunday. And little did they know, when they, they do communion every Sunday there, I remember going, oh, they use wine, not grape juice. You should have seen some of our, back then they were teens, now they're adults, their first time they're getting like, they sip like, whoa, that's not grape juice. Their eyes were big. Like, am I going to be in trouble? Why don't we use wine? You know, I was doing some research on this. It wasn't until the 19th century until churches started using grape juice. So pretty much all throughout church history, it's been wine. 
And we, like many Protestant churches, not all, but many, have grape juice. And there's, there's many reasons why. Some people say, well, the wine we use today is a lot stronger and potent than the wine they had back in Jesus' day, which I think is true. But for us, I think a big thing is we know that there's so much alcoholism, especially in Wisconsin. So we want to be sensitive to that issue, and we know that it's a problem in our society. And grape juice is totally fine. That's exactly what it is before it turns into wine. So we use grape juice. So that's a definition of kind of what's happening here. Now the last part of our definitions. I know, again, normally I don't do these definitions, but hopefully some of this helps you kind of understand why we don't use Eucharist, sacrament, ordinance, helping you out here. Let me end with this, which will lead to our next section in differences. Two passages here. Take a look at them. John chapter 6, verse 44. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood, has eternal life. Again, for an outsider, this would be cannibalism. What, what are you guys doing? That's what Jesus said. Then Matthew, chapter 26, verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, take and eat. This is my body. Now, at first you might go, okay, that is weird. Jesus says, you must eat of my flesh, drink of my blood. What's happening here? This is not cannibalism. And if you go back to John, John chapter 6, we know that Jesus talks about himself as being the bread of life. And he uses the bread metaphor to show that this bread is what produces life. And if you don't have it, you must have it or you will die. Bread is this salvation that you need. And he attributes himself... He's the bread of life. And this imagery points to, this metaphor points to the crucifixion where he surrenders his body so that we could have life. All right, let me move on then to differences. Let's now look at how different churches view communion. And these differences are very important. As we will see, the most important issue isn't does the bread become the body of Christ or not? You, I mean, have you ever had that conversation with anyone or thought of that? We'll get that here in a moment. The most important is the distinctions. We're going to talk about the differences here, but this will lead to the most important part, the distinction. What's being accomplished? What is actually happening when someone takes communion? So four different views. Okay, here we go. The first one is the Roman Catholic view. First one is the Roman Catholic view. And what I've done is I've got that one right here. The Roman Catholic view. The bread and wine are blessed by a priest, and when he does that, he consecrates them. And if you remember the word consecrate means to make holy, to sanctify is another way you can say it. He consecrates the wine and the bread. And I tried to find a gold chalice, but we don't have one at home. But I did find, this is from my honeymoon, a little gold strip. This is from the inn that we were at. So it's the only thing that was gold except for my ring at my home. And I've kind of got a gold plate. Very liturgical. Very serious. They have this gold chalice, everything. And then the priest blesses it during the Mass service. Then, when he blesses it, the bread and wine are transformed into the actual blood and body of Christ. That's their understanding. 
They appear just to be bread and wine. In essence, though, before God, the substance changes. The essence, yeah, it's still bread, still wine, but the substance changes. And it actually is the body and blood of Christ. That's why, you know, I never grew up Catholic. Maybe some of you did. That's why at the end, the priest, he gobbles it all down. Because after they've consecrated it, made it holy, it's the blood and body of Christ, it would be horrible to just discard it. It must be consumed. So for the Catholics, that's their understanding. The Roman Catholic view. Another aspect, and more importantly for our teaching today, is that the Eucharist, so the Catholics are the one that call this the Eucharist, the Eucharist is a sacrament. Whereas for these, although Lutherans kind of, that's why I've got this kind of mapped out here, these two are under the purple one, so they're more liturgical. They have some things that are very much in common, although there's a huge difference between this, that bread that's on the gold plate compared to bread that's on these three. The Roman Catholics call this a sacrament. The Roman Catholics have seven sacraments that they have in their church. And each of those convey or imparts divine grace to those who participate in it. If you partake of this, then you get imparted divine grace. So in taking the Eucharist, what is being accomplished is the forgiveness of sins. If you want forgiveness of sins, partake of this or the other six sacraments, sacraments, that's how you can be pardoned before God. For one to be justified before God and to get infused in them grace, the participant then gets this grace and then they're able to live a holy life. We're going to get back to this issue in a moment. So here is this line again. Now the rest of these views became prominent during the Reformation time. And they even have prominent figures, thinkers that were behind a lot of this. So there's a very big difference. That's why I put the bread on this plate compared to this one. They share the same kind of the same understanding of this. Even though I've got the purple cloth here because Lutherans are a little bit more liturgical like the Catholics. The next view the Lutheran view. Lutheranism rejects the view of the Eucharist as Catholics understand it. That it actually becomes the blood of Christ and the bread of Christ. They reject that view. The elements here are not transformed into the actual parts of Christ, but rather, and here's the phrase they use, Christ is present in, with, and under the bread and the wine whenever the Lord's Supper is celebrated. There is a sacramental union of bread and wine with the body and blood of Christ. So I, this week I asked my Lutheran pastor friend in this area, he said, okay, what do you call it? Do you use the term Eucharist? And he said, no, we don't, because again, there's this kind of line. Some Lutherans may use the term Eucharist, but not in the sense that the Catholics do. They would say, we call it communion. He said, I like calling it the Lord's Supper. Okay, the third view. 
So what I've done, and I even got different cups to represent this, this has more of a liturgical look to it, whereas this one has kind of a more of a modern look, and you'll see this one here. The next view is the spiritual present view. So again, the Lutheran one, of course, was prominent because of Martin Luther during the Reformation. This next one, here, denominations like Reformed, Presbyterian, Anglican follow this view. And these come from the teaching of John Calvin. So this is the spiritual understanding of how they would view communion. Christ is not present literally, as the Catholics say, but Christ is present spiritually in these elements when you partake of them. Again, uh, Reformed, Presbyterian, Anglican, they have these as symbols. The symbols do more than represent. They're not just symbols here, but Christ's present is, is, His presence is actually here in these elements. He's present in this. And they bring us to the presence of Christ. Then the last one is the memorial view. And I've got even more. I kind of stepped down. If it was up to me, I'd have like a gold one. I would have borrowed something from the Lutheran church and a nice one. And then this is kind of like uh, Indiana Jones, you've chosen wisely. It's kind of just a simple made one here. This is the memorial view. So the, this one, Roman Catholic. This one, Luther. This one, Calvin. This one here, the memorial one, is Zwingli, the Swiss reformer around the time of Luther, taught the memorial view of communion. Christ commanded us to do this in remembrance of Me. And that is what we do. The bread and wine are merely symbols reminding us that Christ's body was broken for us. His blood was shed for us. Here we got Roman Catholic. Here we got Lutheran. We got Presbyterian, Reformed. Here, this view would be Baptist. This one would be evangelical free. In fact, let me read out of our Statement of Faith book here, the Evangelical Convictions. I think I've got this quoted up there in the top. There says, The bread and cup point us to Christ's atoning death, but are eating and drinking what Jesus describes as his body and blood symbolized that we also share in Christ's resurrection life. What's not up here, let me just read a little bit more. It says, however, the evangelical reformers were not in agreement. So again, during the Reformation, these three had different ways of looking at it. The Lutherans considered it that Christ was truly present in, with, and under the physical elements of the bread and wine, though in a supernatural, heavenly manner. Followers of Zwingli understood the language of regarding Christ's body and blood metaphorically, and the Lord's Supper was understood as a meal of remembrance, while the Calvinists sought a real spiritual presence of Christ in communion elements. And then it says here, most, evangel most free churches would be closest to this one here. Now, I understand this one, that Christ is present, but you know what? When you're sleeping, where is Christ? Just waiting for you to do something? He's present with you by His Spirit, right? Christ is always present, not just when we take communion, 
But I think I understand where they wanted to kind of elevate. This is a serious moment when you take this. Don't take this like you're eating a hamburger. Christ is with us. So I understand that, although, again, I'm more a memorial view. Here's my example. This is my wedding photo album. Whoa, look, my wife would be sad. I got pictures falling out there. This is a memory of all that happened that day. How many of you have one of these? How many of yours have dust on it? Okay, don't be embarrassed, yeah. We don't, my wife and I don't go, this is, we're still living on, no, this happened a while ago, but we look at these pictures and go, remember, what a great day that was. We remember, and that's what we do. In fact, if you notice on our table here, do this in remembrance of me. That's what Christ said. So that's the memorial view. Those are the four views. So later tonight, as we leave, if you have more questions about, you know, what's the difference with this, uh, maybe I'll do my best to help you. But hopefully that's helpful so you understand how different churches view it in a different way. But this is the most important part. The distinction. For us, really, the issue isn't is it really the bread, the body turns into the body of Christ? Is this really the, you know, that's not the real issue. Or what name to call it? Should we call it the Lord's Supper? Should we call it communion? It's not the main issue. Should we do it every Sunday? Should we just do it, like for us as a church, we typically do communion on the first Sunday of the month. When should we do communion? That's not the main issue. The main issue here gets to the heart of the Gospel. What is happening or accomplished when someone takes communion? And again, this is the heart of the Gospel. And here is this huge line between these three and this one right here. The difference between Catholics and Protestants. So here we go. And I've got this all written out so you can read this. For Catholics, what's being accomplished? Justification. Do this and you'll get God's grace infused in you. You can live a holy life. So I wrote this down. When a person takes a sacrament, when they obey by doing, they believe that the grace of God is infused in them so, they're, so that they are acceptable before God. By doing that, they are justified, made holy, and thus they can stand before God as holy people. What is being accomplished is the forgiveness of sins. To be holy, one must do a sacrament, then you'll be accepted by God. That's what's being accomplished. For me, I would say that's very dangerous. Now let's look at the Protestant understanding of this. What is being accomplished for Protestants? When you and I take communion, what's happening? Is it justification? No, again, here's the big dividing line. For Protestants, it's remembrance. A Christian is justified, made holy before God, not based upon what they can do, but upon what Christ has already accomplished. 
our standing before God is based upon Christ's work and not our performance. Praise God. Amen? We are holy because His of His grace alone, and Christ's work brought me into that right standing before God. Then out of that, then communion is a visible outward sign of the spiritual reality that has happened. When a person in genuine faith has communion, they remember and proclaim the gospel message when they take communion. Big difference is this. For the Catholics... It's how to get right with God, justification. But for Protestants, Christ did that for me, so we do that in remembrance of Him. Now again, though, there's once in a while where sometimes I think the Lutherans get a little close to this, and I think Luther maybe didn't have time, or I don't know, but sometimes they make it sound like doing this is a mean, but when you look at their writings, they're very different. Grace alone, Christ alone. So now let me end with purpose. Take your Bibles and go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is the famous passage again that most people when they have communion they read this passage. Again, last week we read it understanding fellowship and then what came before and after it was very clear, very important. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26. So he's talking about communion, what the Lord did the night he was betrayed, with the cup, with the bread. And then listen to this. This isn't the only purpose of communion, but this is pretty serious here where it just lays it out. Verse 26. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, You proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So whenever we do this, in remembrance, not to be justified, but when we do this in remembrance, we do what? We do this, we proclaim, we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. So the purpose of communion is proclamation. Proclamation of the Gospel. So in one aspect, we look back And we proclaim what Christ has done. When I take this, I remember proclaim He died for me. His body broken for me. I remember. I look back and I remember. I proclaim that. These are visible, tangible symbols to remind us what Christ has done. But then, we also, look at me, we look around. We look back, but we also look around. We remind ourselves and each other of the gospel. This here is not a proclamation to unbelievers. Instead, it's proclaiming to believers. We confirm our union with Christ, our union with the fellowship with other believers around us, that we are members of the body of Christ. And often, in fact, I believe communion should be done with others. Yeah, once in a while you can take it on your own. If you're in prison, you got to take it on your own. During COVID, you know, how do we do this? But listen, when you look at church history, we look back and proclaim, we look right now and proclaim it to each other. This is what the Lord did. We do this in fellowship as a community meal, displaying our unity with Christ and with others. So we look back, 
we look around, but look at this, we also look forward. We do this until the day He comes back. Part of our taking communion is anticipation. We do this until He comes, it says. We do this looking forward with hope, proclaiming the Gospel until He comes. So let me end again with this. All of this is very serious. That's why I kind of like the spiritual aspect. Christ is present. But I'm like, Christ is always present. That's why we're more memorial. We, we remember. Because Christ is present. It's a very serious thing we're doing here. But what's the most serious part is what this accomplishes. Doing this, doing all the goodies you can in this world will not get you to heaven. You will never be good enough, right? None of us. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What this accomplishes is once we have been saved, we remember, that's why I've got this colored one here, we remember Christ's life and death given for us. So what we're going to do is this. Randy's going to come up. He's going to play the piano. And we're going to take communion together. So we here at Maranatha, a couple things, we have open communion. You don't have to be a member of our church to take communion. But if you are a member of Christ's body, if you belong to Christ, if He's saved you and you understand it's saved by grace, not by works, join us in communion. So we're going to do communion like that. We have open communion as a church. We have gluten-free. If you're gluten-free, there's gluten-free in the box here. We've put these out with gloves and masks and hazmat suits. Not hazmat suits, but we didn't lick every wafer. So you can come up. And I encourage you during this time, come up in family units. Social distance as best as you can. Take the elements back and we all have it together. We will take it together. Sound good? All right, let me pray before we take this communion together. Lord, I thank you that we had a night to even think through maybe some of the differences we have with other Christians. And I pray for those who do things thinking that you'll love them more or that you'll give them grace because they're all squeaky clean or whatever. God, help them to see that it's by Christ alone, faith alone, and grace alone. And Lord, we remember tonight We think back that your body was given. You're the bread of life. We need life. And you're that bread. Without it, we would die. And you gave your life so we could live. This I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So at your leisure time, just come up, take the elements and sit down, and we're all together, then we'll take it together. I should have done a sound check for this part and a Zoom check on our camera thing. So Stacy, get ready here. She's going to walk up to the camera. This is very important because I know there's going to be some of our church body that's watching this online. Do I got to stand over here? Okay, I'll just get close. I'm standing on a chair. Don't do this at home. For those of you who are missing out on this kind of fellowship with us, know that we miss you. 
If you want communion, pastors, we'll come, we'll sanitize, wear three masks, if that's what it takes, so we can do communion with you. I want you to know that. We miss you, we love you, can't wait for the time that you can fellowship with us. And if you want communion, we will come to you. Just wanted to do that, let people know. All right, let me get back to this. It's Communion Sunday, and on Communion Sunday here at Marinette, we have a basket in the back, our benevolence basket. We put funds in there to support those who are in need, and encourage you to do that. The cups that you have, we have a trash bin back there and a couple on the way out. You can dispose of them, throw them away. I've got a list of things here I've got to make sure I say. Also, a little thing, we got some bread and potatoes. If you want to take some, grab some. One of the guys, Tony or Aaron, is going to be back there. If you want some potatoes today, come with some rye bread, please take that home. And then also this here. Next week is our Sanctity of Life Sunday. I mentioned this last week. Normally we just give like five, seven minutes of our service to that. But this Sunday, and coming up next Saturday night and Sunday, we're going to dedicate our whole service to that. We're going to go through the biblical understanding of the dignity of life, the logical and rational reasons why that must be. And I'm going to share part of my story. I'm adopted, and I'm going to share part of that story at that service. So I encourage you to come, bring friends so they can learn. All right, God bless you. Thanks for worshiping with us. Have an awesome week together.